Chapter forty three of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Why should I pause to ask how much of my shrinking from Provis might be traced to Estella? Why should I loiter on my road to compare the state of mind in which I had tried to rid myself of the stain of prison before meeting her at the coach office with the state of mind in which I now reflected? on the abyss between Estella in her pride and beauty, and the returned transport whom I harboured. The road would be none the smoother for it, the end would be none the better for it, he would not be helped, nor I extenuated. A new fear had been engendered in my mind by his narrative, or rather his narrative had given form and purpose to the fear that was already there. If Compeyson were alive and should discover his return, I could hardly doubt the consequence, that Compeyson stood in mortal fear of him. Neither of the two could know much better than I, and that any such man as that man had been described to would hesitate to release himself for good from a dreaded enemy by the safe means of becoming an informer was scarcely to be imagined. Never had I breathed, and never would I breathe, or so I resolved, a word to Estella of Provis but I said to Herbert that before I could go abroad I must see both Estella and Miss Havisham. This was when we were left alone on the night of the day when Provis told us his story. I resolved to go out to Richmond next day, and I went. On presenting myself at Mrs. Brandley's, Estella's maid was called to tell that Estella had gone into the country. Where? To Sartis' house, as usual. Not as usual, I said, for she had never yet gone there without me. When was she coming back? There was an air of reservation in the answer which increased my perplexity, and the answer was that her maid believed she was only coming back at all for a little while. I could make nothing of this, except that it was meant that I should make nothing of it, and I went home again in complete discomfiture. Another night consultation with Herbert, after Provis was gone home, I always took him home, and always looked well about me led us to the conclusion that nothing should be said about going abroad until I came back from Miss Havisham's. In the meantime, Herbert and I were to consider separately what would be best to say, whether we should devise any pretence of being afraid that he was under suspicious observation, or whether I, who had never yet been abroad, should propose an expedition. We both knew that I had but to propose anything and he would consent. We agreed that his remaining many days in this present hazard was not to be thought of. Next day I had the meanness to feign that I was under a binding promise to go down to Joe, but I was capable of almost any meanness towards Joe or his name. Provis was to be strictly careful while I was gone, and Herbert was to take the charge of him that I had taken. I was to be absent only one night, and on my return the gratification of his impatience for my starting as a gentleman on a greater scale was to be begun. It occurred to me then, and as afterwards I found to Herbert also, that he might be best got away across the water, on that pretence, as to make purchases or the like, having thus cleared the way for my expedition to Miss Havisham's, I set off by the early morning coach, before it was yet light, and I was out on the open country road when the day come creeping on, halting and whimpering and shivering, and wrapped in patches of cloud and rags of mist, like a beggar. When we drove up to the Blue Boar after a drizzly ride, 
whom should i see come out of the gateway toothpick in hand to look at the coach but bentley drummle as he pretended not to see me i pretended not to see him it was a very lame pretence on both sides the lamer because we both went into the coffee-room where he had just finished his breakfast and where i ordered mine it was poisonous to me to see him in the town for i very well knew why he had come there pretending to read a smeary newspaper long out of date which had nothing half so legible in its local news as the foreign matter of coffee pickles fish sauces gravy and melted butter and wine with which it was sprinkled all over as if it had taken the measles in a highly irregular form i sat at my table while he stood before the fire by degrees it became an enormous injury to me that he stood before the fire and i got up determined to have my share of it i had to put my hand behind his legs for the poker when i went up to the fireplace to stir the fire but still pretended not to know him is this a cut said mr drummle oh said i poker in hand it's you is it how do you do i was wondering who it was who kept the fire off with that i poked tremendously and having done so planted myself side by side with mr drummle my shoulders squared and my back to the fire you have just come down said mr drummle edging me a little away with his shoulder yes said i edging him a little away with my shoulder beastly place said drummle you're part of the country i think yes i assented i'm told it's very like your shropshire not in the least like it said drummle here mr drummle looked at his boots and i looked at mine and then mr drummle looked at my boots and i looked at his have you been here long i asked determined not to yield an inch of the fire long enough to be tired of it returned drummle pretending to yawn but equally determined do you stay here long can't say answered mr drummle do you can't say said i i felt here through a tingling in my blood that if mr drummle's shoulder had claimed another hair's breadth of room i should have jerked him into the window equally that if my own shoulder had urged a similar claim mr drummle would have jerked me into the nearest box he whistled a little so did i large tract of marshes about here i believe said drummle yes what of that said i mr drummle looked at me and then at my boots and then said oh and laughed are you amused mr drummle no said he not particularly i'm going out for a ride in the saddle i mean to explore those marshes for amusement out of the way villages there they tell me curious little public houses and smithies and that waiter yes sir is that horse of mine ready brought round to the door sir i say look here you sir the lady won't ride to-day the weather won't do very good sir and i don't dine because i'm going to dine at the ladies very good sir then drummle glanced at me with an insolent triumph on his great jowled face that cut me to the heart dull as he was and so exasperated me that i felt inclined to take him in my arms as the robber in the story-book is said to have taken the old lady and seat him on the fire one thing was manifest to both of us and that was that until relief came neither of us could relinquish the fire there we stood well squared up before it shoulder to shoulder and foot to foot with our hands behind us not budging an inch the horse was visible outside in the drizzle at the door my breakfast was put on the table drummles was cleared away the waiter invited me to begin i nodded we both stood our ground 
have you been to the grove since said trummle no said i i had quite enough of the finches the last time i was there was that when we had a difference of opinion yes i replied very shortly come come they let you off easily enough sneered drummle you shouldn't have lost your temper mr drummle said i you are not competent to give advice on that subject when i lose my temper not that i admit to having done so on that occasion i don't throw glasses i do said drummle after glancing at him once or twice in an increased state of smouldering ferocity i said mr drummle i did not seek this conversation i don't think it an agreeable one i'm sure it's not said he superciliously over his shoulder i don't think anything about it and therefore i went on with your leave i will suggest that we hold no kind of communication in future quite my opinion said drummle and what i should have suggested myself or done more likely without suggesting but don't lose your temper haven't you lost enough without that what do you mean sir waiter said drummle by way of answering me the waiter reappeared look here you sir you quite understand that the young lady don't ride to-day and that i dine at the young lady's quite so sir when the waiter had felt my fast cooling teapot with the palm of his hand and had looked imploringly at me and had gone out drummle careful not to move the shoulder next to me took a cigar from his pocket and bit the end off but showed no sign of stirring choking and boiling as i was i felt that we could not go a word further without introducing estella's name which i could not endure to hear him utter and therefore i looked stonily at the opposite wall as if there were no one present and forced myself to silence how long we might have remained in this ridiculous position it is impossible to say but for the incursion of three thriving farmers laid on by the waiter i think who came into the coffee-room unbuttoning their greatcoats and rubbing their hands and before whom as they charged at the fire we were obliged to give way i saw him through the window seizing his horse's mane and mounting in his blundering brutal manner and sliding and backing away i thought he was gone when he came back calling for a light for the cigar in his mouth which he had forgotten a man in a dust-coloured dress appeared with what was wanted i could not have said from where whether from the inn-yard or the street or where not and as drummle leaned down from the saddle and lighted his cigar and laughed with a jerk of his head towards the coffee-room windows the slouching shoulders and ragged hair of this man whose back was towards me reminded me of orlick too heavily out of sorts to care much at the time whether it were he or no or after all to touch the breakfast i washed the weather and the journey from my face and hands and went out to the memorable old house that it would have been so much the better for me never to have entered and never to have seen End of chapter 43